Good morning. So good to see everybody today. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas, at least as good as it could be, as hot as it was. My goodness. Ever wondered what it's like to have Christmas in July? I think now we know. Uh, Cold weather's coming, though. That's what's out there. I'm excited. Hadn't got enough cold weather yet, so good news it's on its way. Uh, This morning we are back in Romans again. We've been away for a few weeks, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 11. And just uh, while you're doing that, I want to kind of let you know where we're going for the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to finish up chapter 11 this Sunday and next Sunday. And then starting the following Sunday after that, uh, Danny and I are going to kind of tag team and just talk about uh, where we're going. Um, Every January, I like to just kind of give an assessment of where we are as a church and, and where we're going uh, staff has been praying and, and discussing some things, and there's been some things in the works that we're putting together for this next year that I'm excited about, so uh, be sure to be here for that um, so you know where we're kind of going as a church in 2016. Uh, in Romans 11, it's been a while since we've been here, so let me kind of bring us up to speed and uh, remind us. Last, last time we were here, we read verses 1 through 10 of this chapter, and what we read in that was Paul saying that there is only a remnant of Israel who are going to be the recipients of the promises that were made by God in the Old Testament. The promises and the inheritance was never about the nation as a whole, but it had always been about the believing remnant, and not only the remnant of Israel, but all, both Jew and Gentile alike, who trust in Jesus as the Messiah. And the point that Paul has been making in that is that this has happened this way only because God has always purposed for it to happen this way. The remnant exists not because of anything that the people did, but because God sovereignly chose them to be the remnant. And the rest of Israel is not included because, as Paul said in the first part of the chapter, God hardened them to the gospel. And then beginning in verse 11, Paul's going to go into greater depth in explaining how God is working all this out. So let's do that. Let's stand together and start in Romans 11, beginning in verse 11. He says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is a reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. And Holy Spirit, I'm asking you again to just open our eyes to the truth in this. Lord, would you let us get the things that you want us to get out of here. Lord, would you use these truths to just stir our affections for for you, Lord, that we may leave here more in love and more in awe of you than we were when we walked in here. That Jesus, you may be glorified in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Now, it appears that Paul is saying here that the hardening of Israel is not going to be their ultimate fate. I believe that's the idea he's, he's conveying there in verse 11 when he says they did not stumble so that they would ultimately fall. He appears to be saying that there is a purpose to the hardening, which he refers to as stumbling here in verse 11, but that God isn't going to leave Israel in that hardened state forever. Now, before we get into all this, I need to tell you that I am not confident enough in my understanding of what all Paul is saying about Israel here to make this sermon about Israel's fate. There are really two different interpretations that I could see both possibly working here. And I'm not 100% sure on which one is the more accurate one. See, there's part of me that reads this, plus other things that Paul says later in this chapter, and interprets it this way. That although there have been generations of Israel who have been hardened to the gospel and have suffered the consequences of that, there is going to be a final generation before Jesus returns who are going to have their eyes open to the truth. And that interpretation seems even more plausible when you read what Paul says later on in verse 26 when he says, All Israel will be saved. But then there's another part of me that struggles with that because Paul has already made it clear that God doesn't save anyone based on their racial heritage. And so God wouldn't save a generation of Israelites just because they are Israelites. And Paul has also made it clear that all the promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Jesus. And so if the promises have been fulfilled, then Israel is owed nothing even salvation. And then as far as verse 26 is concerned, I'm not completely sure which Israel Paul is referring to when he says all Israel will be saved. Because remember back in chapter 9, he redefined who Israel is, at least from God's perspective. Israel, as defined by God, includes all who are in Christ and has nothing to do with race, religion, or geographical location. So when he says all Israel will be saved in verse 26, it's very possible that he's referring to spiritual Israel rather than natural Israel. And so since I'm not really sure which of those interpretations are correct, I'm not going to make this a sermon about Israel's fate. And the other reason I'm not going to make this sermon about Israel is because, truthfully, it doesn't really matter which of those interpretations you believe in. Now, I understand that with everything going on in the world today, and especially over in the Middle East, that there is this renewed interest in end times prophecy and how Israel fits into all of that. And I'm sure some of you would probably wish that I would spend more time talking about what's going to happen to Israel and how it fits into everything that's going on in the world today. But the truth is, that is not something that you and I need to be consumed by. It's just not. And it is easy for us to get distracted by stuff like that. And it was even easier for people in Jesus' day to get distracted by that. And Jesus warned them not to. 
after he had risen from the dead and appeared to his disciples, one of the first things or the first thing that they wanted to know was what was going to happen to Israel. In John 1, 6, they asked him, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answered them in the very next verse. In verse 7, he says, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then right after that, he tells them what they do need to be about, what they do need to focus on. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So I believe Jesus is telling them there, don't concern yourself with what's going to happen to Israel. You leave that to God. What you need to be about is the kingdom that you are a part of right now in me. And so whether God removes the hardening and ends up saving all of Israel or whether he leaves them to their blindness, that is not what's important to us. Israel's ultimate fate has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on what Christ has done for you, who you are in him, and what you are to do with that now. What God wants us to focus on and talk about the most is what it means for us to receive unmerited, undeserved grace through Christ. What is most important for us is to trust God's wisdom and sovereign hand at work in every detail of our lives and let that be the source of our unbridled worship to him. What's most important is not knowing exactly what's going to happen to Israel. What is most important is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Studying about Israel's fate is not going to produce more love for God in us. And so therefore, even though Paul seems to put a lot of emphasis on Israel here in chapter 11, I'm going to pull out the greater point that I believe that Paul is making in focusing on Israel, the things that I believe will cause us to love God more. Like I said last time, the whole point of the Bible is God revealing himself to us through it. The more we discover about God, the more we fall in love with him. And so if we spend our time reading the Bible to discover more about Israel than we do about God, we're going to completely miss him. Like I always teach, everything in the Bible points to Jesus. And everything that we read in there, we should do it with the intent of finding him. And so let's do that with this passage this morning. First thing I believe that Paul is trying to show us is just how God operates in the world. Last time we looked at the difficult and troubling reality that God hardens people, blinds them to the gospel. And I'm telling you, that truth just taken in isolation by itself is a hard pill to swallow. And where we get into trouble is when we do take that and just focus on it in isolation, take it by itself. When we get fixated on just that one truth, that one aspect of God, it can lead to divisiveness among us. You know, it seems like I've been spending a lot of time lately just talking about the doctrine of election, and the only reason I'm doing that is because Paul 
talks about it a lot in the last few chapters that we've been going on in Romans. And I've told you before that the doctrine of election is not a hill that I am willing to die on. And what I mean by that is that I will discuss it with people, I will stand by it, and I will defend it, but not at the expense of breaking fellowship with anyone. It is not worth that. If someone doesn't see it the way that I do, I'm not going to let that be a wedge that Satan wants to use to try to bring divisiveness. If you don't see it the way I do, I'm not going to encourage you to go find another church. And I sincerely hope you don't encourage me to either. Because I really like it here. And some people do make that a source of division. And I think that is really sad. Because it is not an issue that affects whether or not someone is saved. It's just a difference in understanding in how we came to be saved in the first place. And then another reason why it shouldn't be a source of division is because this is just one aspect of how God operates. It's just one facet of an incredibly multifaceted God. God's act of hardening some is just one part of a much bigger picture, one small part of how God operates. And this is why I say we've got to be careful not to look at it and take it and focus on it just in isolation. Doing that is what causes emotions on both sides of the issue to rise up way more than they should. Paul shows how it fits into a much bigger picture in the text that we just read. In the verses before, verses 1 through 10 that we read last time, he tells us how much of Israel has been hardened to the gospel, and then he explains what that hardening looks like, how it plays out in the lives of those who have been hardened. And if he had just left it at that, that would be hard to take. But he doesn't leave it at that. He then shows that there, it's just part of something much bigger, that there is a greater reason behind it. He says in verse 11 that the hardening has resulted in the salvation of the Gentiles. That's you and me. And then he says that the salvation of the Gentiles has come in order to make the hardened Israelites jealous. And then in verse 14, he says that their jealousy will hopefully be used for their ultimate salvation. The hardening of many Jews leads to the salvation of many Gentiles in order to save even more Israelites. In verse 15, he says that their rejection has led to the reconciliation of the whole world. Do you know what that means? That means instead of us getting bent out of shape and mad that God would harden somebody to the gospel, there should be at least some part of us that is thankful for it. The fact that he had hardened much of Israel. Now, if you have any compassion for people at all, it's going to be hard to be thankful that someone will be hardened and miss out on salvation. So maybe thankful is the wrong word, but it should definitely humble us. Because he clearly says here that their hardening has led to your salvation. If God had not hardened Israel as a whole, you and I would not be sitting in here today celebrating the fact that we have been made right with God through Christ. 
verses 11 through 15 is really an echo of Romans 8, 28 that says God works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The big, bigger picture is that God has worked out the hardening of Israel and the salvation of the Gentiles and working all that out together for your good and his glory. And so you see why it's wrong to just focus on that one part, on just the hardening? Because when we do, we miss the much bigger picture. And God has revealed to us something about himself here and how he operates. Which means that then we can take what we learn about God and apply it to other situations. Like when something bad happens to us, we lose a job. We lose a loved one. Our country falls apart. Our tendency is to focus on that isolated event just by itself. And when we do that, we get discouraged, we get mad, we worry, we let fear consume us. But because of what God has just revealed about himself to us here in Romans chapter 11, we know that we don't have to live that way any longer. We can take comfort in the fact that God is working something that looks so bad in isolation that in reality is just one very small part of a much bigger picture that he is working for your good and his glory. Of course, this isn't the only place in the Bible where we see God operating like this. There's the story of Joseph's abuse at the hands of his brothers that led to many years of slavery and imprisonment in Egypt. Joseph had some bad things happen to him, and if he would have focused on any one of those things as an isolated event, he would have been very discouraged. But he didn't do that. He trusted that God was working a bigger picture out. And the whole story of Joseph is summed up in Genesis fifty twenty. It says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The crucifixion of Jesus, it was sinful. It was unjust, yet meticulously planned by God for your salvation. The first point in your notes, if you're following along in your guide, there is something that we must always keep in mind. God is always doing more than one thing. Always. Hardening, yes, but oh, so much more. Let's move on to something else. Let's pick up in verse 16. It says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fail severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. 
For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who, were, who are the natural branches be grafted in to their, old, their own olive tree? Again, what we should take from this is not necessarily what's going to happen to the nation of Israel, but what this means for us. I'm telling you right now that what this means for us in these verses that we just read is absolutely incredible. Somebody told me this morning after the service, they said, man, the good news just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Like, you better believe it does. He gives the analogy of grafting branches from one tree to another. And I brought two trees with me this morning. I'll move them up here where you can see them a little better. So that you can, uh, that one's bowing down in worship, it looks like. (laughs) So I want you to better be able to just visualize what it means to be in Christ. This tree here, let's say it represents the, that's going to bug me, represents the first tree that Paul was talking about. We'll call it the Israel tree. And uh, it has a root down here at the base, which everything else about this tree would not be able to exist if it wasn't for that root. Everything about this tree comes from the root, the color of the leaves, how many leaves are on it, the shape of the branches. It all stems from the, the root. Now, the root that Paul is talking about represents the, the ancestors, the founding fathers of the nation. It's where we get the term roots when we talk about our family heritage today. These ancestral roots of Israel are mentioned in several places in the Bible. Specifically, there are three genealogies that are listed in Scripture. The first one is in Genesis 5, and it goes from Adam, the first man, down to Noah. The second one is in Genesis chapter 11. It picks up and it goes from Noah to Abraham. And then the third genealogy is in Matthew chapter 1, and it goes from Abraham to Jesus. These make up the root of the Israel tree. Now, all through the Old Testament, God makes promises to the root concerning future generations. And as we've been talking up about, people have always assumed that those promises were to the nation, the natural nation of Israel as a whole. But Paul has been explaining that, no, it is about the believing remnant. Faith in Christ is what makes you a recipient of those promises, not your racial heritage. And some of you may still be thinking, well, how can that be? How can we, a bunch of people with mostly European ancestry on one side of the ocean, be the recipients of promises that were made to a bunch of Jews long ago on the complete opposite side of the ocean? You may have a hard time really grasping that. But I hope for you to be able to see it here with these standing up here. With the analogy of the tree, all the branches of the tree become the recipients of the root. Look at verse 17 again. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And so it's saying that God takes the Israel tree here. 
and he hardens some. He says he cuts these branches off. These branches are cut off. These are the ones who do not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. These are the ones that God has hardened to the truth of the gospel. And what's left is the remnant. And then he comes over here to the wild olive tree, which represents me and you. And he takes that branch and he grafts it in to this tree. Turn it. And so now this is a branch of this tree, this branch that was grafted in, and any other branches that he would take from here and graft into this tree now become the recipients of everything in that root of that tree. The branches become the recipients of the promises that were made to it. Now, you all know how I love showing how everything in the Bible points to Jesus. All those Old Testament stories that we grew up learning about in Sunday school are all foreshadows of the gospel. I could talked about it in the Christmas message last week. I want to show you something that I think is just going to blow your mind. It's a dead mind. And if you haven't yet seen how the promises made to Israel belong to those of us who are in Christ, then just watch this. If we take those three genealogies that I mentioned just a minute ago, we could say that the very deepest part of that root, the most fundamental, deepest part of that root would be that first genealogy from Adam to Noah. It's listed there in your notes. Adam became the father of Seth, who became the father of Enosh, all the way down to Noah. Now, here are the meanings of each of those names. Adam means the man. Remember, he was a type of Christ. Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. Keep that in mind for just a second. Seth means compensation. Enosh means mortal man. Mahalel is praise of God. Jared came down. Enoch means dedicated. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means powerful, and Noah means rest. I'll put all these together and watch this. The man will be the compensation for mortal man. Their possession shall be the praise of God. He came down and was dedicated, for his death shall bring powerful rest. Some of you may be thinking, well, I thought his death brought salvation. What do you mean rest? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4 talks all about what we have as believers in Christ. Verse 9 through 11 says this. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. What's he talking about? Rest from what? Rest from the hardest and most difficult work that anyone could ever do on the face of this planet. 
which is working to try to live up to the requirements of the law. Working to try to earn God's favor, to try to earn his blessings. Working it, just trying to be good and leverage God's blessings through good behavior. Striving to earn God's blessings and approval. That kind of work will kill somebody. Literally. But in Christ, we have all that. There's no need for us to try to work for it any longer. We can now rest in what Christ has done for us. And what a powerful rest it is. The root itself of the tree points to Jesus. But even more than that, the next point in your notes, Jesus is the root of the Israel tree. Look at what he says in Revelation twenty two sixteen. He just comes right out and says it plainly. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And the next one is that all who are in him belong to that tree. This is why Paul said in Romans 9, For they are not all Israel who are descendants of Israel, nor are they all God's children, because they are Abraham's descendants. Then he said, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, meaning natural-born Israelites, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. What was the promise? Jesus was the promise. And I'll wrap all this up by explaining what all this means for us here today. Galatians 3, 13 and through 14 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then he tells us why Jesus redeemed us from the curse. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What are the blessings of Abraham? Well, there are many. And all of those promises and blessings were about God's future activity in the lives of his people that culminates in Jesus Christ. Next point, I believe I said this earlier, that the branches of the tree receive the promises of the root. If you belong to Christ, all the blessings of Abraham are yours. They belong to you. I'll give you one of the more popular ones. In Genesis 12, 3, God tells Abraham... I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How many of you have heard that verse quoted as the reason why the United States should stand with and support the nation of Israel? Sure. I mean, it's very common. All my life, I've heard that if we don't stand with and support Israel then God is going to send curses to our nation. And if we do support them, then God is just going to pour all these blessings out on us, and they use that verse to support that. But I'm telling you, that is a misinterpretation of that verse. You see, secular governments love God's Word when it fits their agenda. That verse has absolutely nothing to do with the nation of Israel today, hardened Israel. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I believe we should stand with Israel, okay? I'm saying that right now. The United States would do very well to stand with and support the nation of Israel. I mean, they're the only ones over in that crazy part of the world with any lick of sense at all. (laughs) And so it would do us good to stand with them. All the Muslims want to kill them, and they want to kill us too. Hey, let's join our forces and keep keep that from happening, right? So we should be standing with Israel, but it has nothing to do with Genesis 12, 3. I mean, based on everything that we've learned in Romans 11 and Galatians 3 and everything else that Paul teaches in the New Testament, that verse has nothing to do with the nation of Israel as a whole and has everything to do with you if you are in Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse so that the blessings of Abraham might come to you and me, the Gentiles. Folks, I don't know about you, but to me, that is really, really good news. (laughs) It's good news. I mean, that means God's got your back. Always. That means that at one time you were cut off, an outcast, excluded from the most prestigious, most powerful planet in all of history. Family on the planet. Most powerful family on the planet. But by God's mercy, when you didn't even deserve to be, you were brought in and included and made a part of that family. You were given a place at the table. And so there is now nothing for you to fear, nothing for you to worry about when you are in Christ. Ephesians 2.13 says, you who are formerly far off have been brought near, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been grafted into a tree, the tree of life that springs and sprouts from an everlasting and powerful root. I'm telling you, knowing all that should cause us to go out from here and bear lots of good fruit. Let's pray. God, it is an incredible thing to think of, to know of what it means to be in you. Lord, all that your blood has purchased for us, God, we haven't even scratched the surface on that. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now and those who are having a hard time grasping this, Lord, would you, just by your power and by your revelation, just enable them to do that. Lord, let these truths well up in us, God, and be the source of our worship and our adoration to you. And God, I pray for the ones who may be in here who are realizing now in a huge way how cut off from your family they have been. Lord, would you open their eyes to see that it's their, the sin that they are choosing to walk in their rejection of you and holding on to their own ways, God, that has kept them outside the family. Lord, I pray by your grace and mercy, Lord, you would lead them to repentance and give them the great gift of faith to believe that only Jesus can make them right, can bring them in. Lord, you created us all with this great desire to want to belong. 
And the only way that desire is fully met is when we know what it means to belong to you. So God, would you make that more real to us today than it has ever been? Holy Spirit, come and just do a work in our hearts, renew our minds. We give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.